RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. Hello, Brian. Hey, Dusty. How's it going? It's going really well. Happy to be here again in RFC Studios recording another episode of RPG Lessons Learned. I'm happy to have you here. Yep. So for those listening at home, RPGLessonsLearned.com, it's still there. <laughs> for now. For now. It still redirects to, to, to the right category within the tfradio.net family of podcasts. So pay us a visit. Check out the, the previous episodes if this is your first. So Brian, today we'll be talking about the Tower of Waiting. The Tower of Waiting. Yeah, so that was the name of, of this uh, dungeon. Uh, very small dungeon, very uh, just a small keep. Uh, very small keep, just a couple of floors, uh, pretty small tower, no big deal. The Tower of Waiting got its name from an, act, not, not an actual tower, but from a tower at the end of the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Handbook. The Tower of Waiting is mentioned uh, as just being a, a haunted tower on a very small island in the midst of the Nintir River, which runs right through Falkrest. So the Tower of Waiting, the name is waiting, the context of you are wait as in you are in wait for something or that you are serving someone. You are in wait for something. Okay. So the, the, the seed for the adventure is there in the Dungeon Master's Guide, um, but no map, no nothing other than, than the seed. So I took that seed. And I developed a map and developed a a, a, a dungeon with, with monsters and encounters and all that because, uh, Brian, in one of our very earliest games, you told me that you really wanted to do every trope of D&D. Do you remember saying that? Yes, I do. One of the tropes of D&D is having a stronghold. So this game was meant to be your player, so, so your opportunity to take over that stronghold. This game immediately followed Cairn of the Winter King, which in turn followed Dusk. So... This was still our fourth edition um, campaign. You were still playing Malkior, the Dragonborn Paladin. So fourth edition campaign, you guys had just hit, I think, sixth or seventh level. We really wanted to get you guys into a stronghold. This session is one of the worst sessions I've ever run. You think so? I know so. And I think as we as we go through our memories here, I, th I think you'll agree. But let me know here at the end. So this was Jason's second game with us because Jason had come back from Oregon, and he had played through Cairn of the Winter King with us. He had played Matthias Sheldon, or Meat Shield, the, the party's, yes. <laughs> yes, the party's uh, tank. Uh, he didn't really care for that. He really wanted to play a, a more magical character, and he had strongly requested to play a necromancer. He really loved the idea of having undead servants. Yeah, he, it's one of those things that he got into his head that he wanted to do, and he was going to do it by God. Yes, so... We switched systems between Cairn of the Winter King and BFRPG. Um, D and D Next was on the horizon. The playtest was D &D underway. D and D Next. That's right. D and D Next. Um, it was on the horizon. the The playtest was underway. Uh, fourth edition. I mean, my God, combat just took forever. I, in fact, I never talked about this, Brian. I I can't believe I didn't cover this in any podcast. I've, I've got to go back and give advice on previous stuff. We made fourth edition work. We made it work. Yeah. And the, one of the ways we made it work is that I was doing the math every single time we had an encounter. I was doubling the monster's damage, and I was cutting their hit points in half. So they would do about the same amount of damage over way fewer rounds. They didn't last as long, yeah. but they hit way harder, and it made for much more brutal combats that ended roughly the same way. 
So fourth edition, my biggest complaint was that combat took for freaking ever. And one of the ways we dealt with that was to, is to double damage and half hit points for all the monsters. Well, I was pretty tired of doing that. I was ready to move on from fourth edition. Um, I would go back and play another game here and there, but I don't think I'd ever run another campaign in that system. Uh, and I was ready to to try something a little bit different. And I had fallen in love with the basic fantasy role playing game, mm-hmm. basicfantasy.org. And the books are so cheap. No, actually, you can get the whole system for free, basicfantasy.org. It's, it's all available 100% for free in both LibreOffice, so you can edit it yourself, and in PDF. And then the books are available on Amazon for like five bucks, man. I got every BFRPG book in print for 30 some bucks at the time. They've released some more books. It'd probably be closer to 40 now. But super cheap system, really built on uh, the, the, the basic Dungeons and Dragons game from the 80s. Um, it does have separate racing class. It does have ascending AC. And aside from those two things, it is super old school. So I was really excited to run the simpler system. And it felt like it'd be a good prep for fifth because all of the uh, all the design ethos, the design principles that Mike Merles uh, was proclaiming to follow on the various D&D official podcasts, BFRPG seemed to embody. It was a rules-light, fast-play system, which is what Merles was, was more or less going for, for 5e. And by the way, I think he succeeded. I love 5e, so I'm not bagging on Merles at all. Um, in BFRPG, there was a supplement for Necromancer. And I'm spending so much time on this because what I'm building up to, that Necromancer was freaking overpowered. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> Jason dominated. He absolutely dominated this game. And uh, I think he recognized that I didn't have a whole lot of fun with it. But man, he had a great time. He did. Uh, no one else did. Did, did, you, did you? Not really. So let's talk about the, briefly what happened. Um, this dungeon had five floors. I had created this dungeon in Visio. I had lovingly crafted it with vector art. I had printed it, laminated it. Um, I'd really thought through every monster and every floor. It was meant to be a quick adventure. It was meant to be a, a small little keep with five floors. So just real quick, yeah. I'm sorry to, to butt in, but like you were showing me the um, the map that we used, and I remember the map well, but I'd forgotten that you made that. It really looks like something that you would have paid for. You did a really good job with Thank that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I actually uh, have a version of this adventure um, almost ready for release, and I, I would never charge for it. I'd put it online for free. Um, hopefully in a few months or weeks, I'll be able to announce on a future show that, hey, I've, I've put a version of this adventure up online as a PDF on RPGLessonsLearned.com for people to download and run. But uh, thank you. Yeah, I spent a lot of time on this. I actually, for the for the draft adventure that I have, Brian, that's mostly done, I actually changed all the art. I still have these Visio files, mm-hmm. but I redid all the floors in isometric view. Oh, really? Yeah, to make it, to, to, to really help the DM visualize what's happening. But anyway, we're way off topic there. We, we ran this very small keep. It was the small keep, the small fort on that island in the middle of Falkrest. And Farron Marklehay, the mayor of Falkrest, his proposal to you guys was, hey, thank you for taking care of the Winter King. Thank you for ending this out-of-season winter. If you can eliminate the haunting of this keep, you can have it until you die. 
Mm-hmm. And Markle Hay was playing a long game with you guys. He knew that that once you had all died, of, and he wasn't trying to cheat you, the natural causes, whatever, yeah. 30 years from now, 50 years from now, whatever. He knew that, hey, in the long game, 50 years from now, even after he's dead, that th- this keep would revert back to Falkrest, free of any haunting, and Falkrest would be, the, would be the better for it. And in the meantime, he knew that you guys would stay there, and having powerful adventurers in the town is, is a boon for the town, especially when those adventurers, well, only if those adventurers are good aligned. And, you and guys, we were. And you were. You were good adventurers. So he wanted to keep you guys around. So giving you a stronghold and increasing your presence only made sense. So the idea was you, you eliminate some zombies, a wraith, a few ghosts, um, a hellhound, some really basic monsters that I'd interspersed, a mimic um, that I'd interspersed in the small keep. Boom, you'd have a fortress. So I really wanted the session to go to where you guys would be exploring it with half an eye toward conquering it yeah. and half an eye toward what you were going to do with it as your own fortress, as your own stronghold. We didn't do that at all. No, we didn't. So the way the game played out, do you remember this, Brian? Yeah. Um, I remember that uh, basically we entered the um, the keep and uh, Jason basically ran wild all over it. Yes, he did. So as a necromancer in BFRPG, and I should point out, in defense of BFRPG, the Necromancer was, was it, it's not in the core rulebook. If you buy the core rulebook on Amazon, the Necromancer is not in there, and for good reason. The main author of BFRPG, Chris Gonerman, um, didn't write the Necromancer class. It truly is homebrew. And any homebrew anyone does, he will put up on um, basicfantasy.org, uh, and he might leave a comment to say, hey, I think this is overpowered, but but he'll still put it up. Yeah. Um, that... That non-core class was definitely overpowered in our game. Jason had a certain number of hit dice of undead creatures he was allowed to have. So he had a bunch of, like, you guys were rocking level 7, level 8. We kept your level as we switched systems. So your level 7 from D&D 4th Edition became level 7 in BFRPG as we rerolled your characters. So Jason was rocking a level 7 necromancer. And uh, he was able to control quite a few hit die of skeletons and zombies. And mm-hmm. the way the adventure actually played out was there was this undead party of zombies and skeletons that ran ahead of your actual party yeah. and cleared out the dungeon um, before you guys even got up to the floor. I, I remember Mike specifically at one point kind of looked at me and shrugged as if to say, well, you know, what are you going to do? This is what we do. We would let them, we would let the undead fight. Yeah. Uh, I, I- I think this is something we really wanted Jason to play. I mean, like Jason had moved to Portland, Oregon back in 08. And this was when 2014. No, this would have been 13, I think 2013. Well, he'd been gone for five years and we'd uh, talked through maybe to get him uh, on Skype and play that way, which we never, maybe we did once. We talked about it. I don't know. Yeah, We talked about it. Like, so we were really excited about Jason being involved. And I don't think Jason had a lot of fun in Karen of the Winter King. I don't think that really was his. Yeah, thing. he was a fighter. He was he was meat, he was the meat shield. He was the tank. Yeah, it didn't really trick his trigger. Yeah, so he really wanted to play this. And um, yeah, and if Jason's listening, hey man, I'm not magging on you at all. Oh, dude, I am. I am ragging on you right now. <laughs> Brian and Jason are best friends back to um, literally birth. Right. I've known Jason since I was uh, born. Yeah. Okay. So all all love for Jason. Um. The game, that that was the game. There's really not much else to say about how the game went. Jason's undead ran through and cleared out the dungeon, and that's just what happened. Uh, I should point out, too, I mentioned during the Dusk episode 
that Dusk and the killing of those fans, the fans of the show, those, those, those yeah. teenage fans of the show, those teenage girls, um, really dealt our campaign its death blow. And at this point, did we, we, did we, we were on life support. Did we realize it at that point, though? No. No, we didn't. We, but but looking back, yeah. during this adventure, the campaign was on life support. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I was throwing the stronghold at you guys to hopefully reinvigorate your investment in town of Falkrist. Um, before this adventure, I had written you guys like a, like practically a, a novella of an email describing your triumphant return to Falkrest from the Cairn of the Winter King. Uh, I described kind of an uncomfortable encounter you guys had with some of the some of the townspeople that were still upset over the death of of of, of their their daughters and oh sisters. And, yes, uh, but I was I was trying to I was trying to bring that to the surface so that you guys could heal and move beyond that. But no, that just cast a pall. It cast a huge pall over the game, and we were very much online. We didn't, we we didn't die yet. This wasn't the last game in the campaign. We'll talk about what I lovingly refer to as the bulletin board adventure in an upcoming episode where the campaign well and truly petered out and died. But this was life support. Yeah, I want to. I have some thoughts around that. I definitely want to dig it into, and we have that bulletin board episode. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. But Brian, I really wanted to ask you some questions this episode. Sure. You guys just, you didn't connect with the idea of the stronghold at all. Why? Um, that, that classically in D&D, DMs think if you dangle a stronghold in front, like there's even, there's even advice in, the, in, in Dungeon Master Guides and handbooks and, and articles, tons of advice that says, hey, once you give your players a stronghold, don't expect them to leave it for several sessions because they're going to be in love with it and they're not going to want to leave and it's this huge new toy they have to play with. So I really thought you guys would be all over this, and you weren't. Why Why was that? So thinking about it, um, I didn't even recall that this was the booty or the bounty that we had um, from this adventure. For whatever reason, it really didn't register. The only time that uh, up until recently when we talked about it, the only time I specifically remembered when we had uh, – basically got her hands on a stronghold was in the uh dusk i guess it was the the other game that mike ran it was mike's game yeah which was in the same world yes but we we're a different set of adventurers yes so for whatever reason that clicked but whether it was something that didn't click in this game didn't excite us afterwards i don't know um but it's just maybe it's the fact that we had never played with other people had been exposed to the idea of a stronghold, didn't necessarily know what we were going to do with it. I don't know, but for whatever reason, it just it wasn't something that immediately registered. So that Mike game was after this game. Okay. And I was a player in the Mike game, and, and the it, it wasn't the replay of Dusk. It was actually, because that was just a one-shot that, that kind of exists in its own parallel universe. The game in Mike's, so, so Mike's game where we got the stronghold, where we played the Hall of the Spider God from... Uh, D&D 4th Edition Dungeon Master for Dummies. But in the For Dummies book, there was the Hall of the Spider God, yeah. this very brief dungeon. We played through that, and after we beat it, I, as a player, never having gotten to do the Stronghold as a DM in this campaign, said to Mike, well, since we've cleared this place out, can we just turn this into a Stronghold? Yes. And we got all into it. Yeah. And we were sending emails back and forth about laying flagstone and all that, and we'll get into that. We'll, we'll have a whole episode about Mike's games and Mike's and then that session in particular. So I don't, I don't want to go too much into that, but we had a lot of um, enthusiasm 
there that we just didn't have here at all. We didn't. So once the game was over, I'm trying to remember what we did once the adventure was over. Uh, I mean, we we knew at the point that uh, we were the mayor had given it to us. But I don't remember even setting up, you know, defenses or anything whatsoever. And repairs. You guys didn't even inquire about. Like, oh, wait, well, we have one. Yeah, you have a stronghold now. Yay. No, you didn't inquire about getting it repaired. You didn't think about fortifying it. You really didn't think through, you know, buying a rowboat to get yourself to and from Falkrus. Because, again, this this keep was on a small island in the middle of the river. So, you know, we we talked before about revisiting these characters. Maybe maybe we should. I set up a session or sorry, I set up a hook. The last email I sent in this campaign, and I really should cover this in the bulletin board game, but it, it took place. Uh, I had you guys returning back to this fortress of yours and discovering a figure inside. And I ended the game there. And as far as I'm concerned, for the last several years, last four years, the characters in this game have been frozen in that moment waiting for us to pick this campaign back up. We should do that. Yeah. And I actually had quite a few hooks set up that I don't want to tell you about, but I had a lot in mind for this campaign. And and when it died, well, we'll talk about it dying later. To focus on this session, this episode, um, I had a lot of fun crafting this dungeon. I had a lot of fun making it a small dungeon. And what killed it was character balance. What killed it was class balance. So I guess thinking in terms of – were we playing BFRPG at this point or is this still 4th edition? Yeah, this, was, this was BFRPG. We, we'd switched. Okay. So um, I in CR level, is, is which gaming system does that fall in or, or, or the challenge level? Sure. Um, so the, the, the CR, the challenge rating of monsters, um, I never played 3rd edition that much, but I know Pathfinder has CR yeah. and Pathfinder is based on 3rd edition. I'm just saying, I guess, if we switched, I know Jason's character was a certain level. The FRPG doesn't really have CR. Right, but it, like, if in terms of, like, Jason's character was a specific level, we were all a specific level. But it almost seems like, again, it comes down to balance, where uh, a level 4 fighter would be a certain CR. It seems like the level 4 necromancer would be like an 8. Yeah, so that's actually a really good point, Brian. Um, I was used to, just because of my experience, at this point, Right now, as we record this podcast, I have played a ton of systems. Yeah. Um, we, as a group, have played L5R, We have, which is roll and keep. We've played uh, BRP, which is a percentile-based system that, that Call of Cthulhu is based on. We've played quite a few D20 systems. Brian, you and I played a Mutants and Masterminds one-shot, which mm-hmm. is a heavily modified D20 system. Um, I have played Castles and Crusades, which is another D20 system. Uh, I play that with Martin every every month or so. I've played a, a Fate. I've played in several Fate games. I've played a ton of systems. Mm-hmm. At this point, as we picked up BFRPG, that was my second system. Okay. So what I was used to in 4th edition were character advancement that, to your point, every time everyone hit 2,000 experience points, boom, you were level 2. Yeah. When you hit X many thousand hit, uh, experience points, you were all level three. And BFRPG, what I didn't fully recognize was that a thief hits level 20 at a much lower number yeah. of experience points than a wizard. So I should not have brought you all over as level seven. Chris's character, Stonewing, should have been probably, if, if you were all level seven, he probably would have been level nine, 10, 11, yeah. something like that. So you're right. By not knowing the system, 
I brought over the Wizards at, at a higher relative level, a higher relative capability level, I guess, um, than their than the counterpart fighters and, and and thieves, and that was a mistake. That was pure system knowledge, but also allowing homebrew and an entire homebrew class into a system that I had never run before. I wish I'd had the encourage is the wrong word, right? Jason's not intimidating. He's, he's a fantastically nice guy. Yes. He can be intimidating if he wants to grapple. Uh, sure. His characters can, are always intimidating, but I wish I'd had the, the social courage, I guess. I wish I'd been more willing to say to Jason, you know what, man, I know you want to play necromancer. Let's keep you as a magic user. Let's keep to a core class in the system. Because I've never played the system before. I mean, today you would have no problem doing today that. Today I'd have no problem. Today I would manage it. Today I would yeah. reduce the hit die of monsters that he had, or I would vastly... You could just tell him no. I'd tell him no. It's So I mentioned a theme last week, right, where one of the themes I keep uncovering as we talk is that metagame's not terrible. If you treat it well, yeah. metagame improves the experience that you all have at the table, because you talk openly about... You know, it encourages a DM to speak openly about, hey, I've never done this before. I'm not comfortable introducing homebrew into session one of a yeah. new system. And the stigma against having that metagame conversation that I really felt at the time that we ran this game kept me from having that conversation. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, again, um, there's a courage, like you said, that you have to have with having certain conversations that comes down to uh, life and business, too. So. Going back to our business ethos, I mean, that's something that you have to be able – I mean, some some reason – one reason people are often in the positions they're in, it's because they can be – they may not have a better skill set. They may not, you know, um, understand the mechanics of how technology framework works, but it's just that they're able to communicate and able to have those tough conversations. Um, I manage people. Yeah. And when you get a new team member and, and they're comfortable with their – pre-existing skill set and, and everyone in business has this thing where it, when they feel stressed they revert to what they know yeah so i have asked for things like project plans before and i'll get i'll get someone saying oh hey can i give that to you in excel well that's sure. not yeah sure yeah but. um and then what's happened a couple of times is, is is talking about homebrew comparing this with homebrew they'll go out and download some workbook that some dude put online for project plan yeah. creation in excel because it's a hack that he had for avoiding Microsoft Project. And they'll do some crazy homebrew workaround thing, and it just it just won't work or it doesn't fit or it's not compatible with the rest of what we're trying to do. I can't take their milestones and import them into my yeah. plan. I, I can't. There's just so much that I can't do. I can't resource load their plan. I can't examine resources. I, I can't. There's so much that we can't do because they're not on the same format. And as a new manager, you want everyone to feel comfortable working. And you want to be able to say to folks, hey, if you're more comfortable with that, then go for it. But what I've learned to do is say, no, you really need to stick to, to this for these reasons. We have these compatibility issues. We have this amount of coordination going on between project managers on program. We need to all be in the same tool so that we have the right visibility. So we have this, so we have that. Yeah, we have standards and practices for a reason. That's not to say I'll never let someone step outside of that. But maybe on a smaller program where it's only, you know, smaller people, a smaller number of people are affected or... What's the risk? It's a program where there's only one project manager, then sure, do your own thing. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I know of project managers at our company that don't use project. Yeah. It's baffling. And if, if they're the only PM, great. Yeah. If they're the only player, great. Let them homebrew. Yeah. The minute you have other people at the table in a program in business, when you have other project managers, or at the gaming table, when you have other players, you need to be on the same page. Yep, absolutely. And hey, maybe maybe a couple months in or a couple sessions in when everyone's comfortable and we understand the coordination that we're doing and how things fit together and how things work together, and you want to bring in some homebrew stuff that you're comfortable with, cool. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. But for those early sessions in a new system, let's keep it simple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your point, again, um, we have, again, everything exists within a framework. It's not like It's not like we're just doing an ad hoc role play. It's not like we're just coming together and just figuring out the rules as we go. Yep. So we, you, you literally exist in a framework that has certain rules that operate in a certain way for a reason. And uh, gosh, it's we, I think we were talking about building macros last week, how we were, we were approaching uh, uh, the Tomb of Horrors. Uh, everything, like if building a macro and then going in and changing variables because you want to do something different and the whole thing crashes. It's just because the logical framework that you build it in is just compromised and boom. Yeah. And in a new system, you've got to crawl. You've got to walk before you can run. Yeah. Is there anything else that we learned from this, Brian? Um, honestly, probably not. Um, I think that maybe, I would like to say maybe grin and bear it, but I don't know that that's always the best, um, approach to things. Oh, as a DM that wounds me. I, I don't, I don't want anyone to ever have to grin and bear my games ever. Like that's not what I'm going for at all. I, I do this because I want people to have a good time. Well, it's it, and it's heartbreaking when we have a bad time. You want the group to have a good time, yes. It, but I think sometimes, especially, oh man, I I I may not want to say what I what I was leaning into. I think Jason probably had a good time. Yeah, I, I said the same thing earlier. So yeah. earlier in the show, I said Jason had a great time. No one else at the table did. Yeah, that's true. And, and again, we're, so Jason, if you're listening, this is no indictment of Jason. You're gonna have this. Different people want to, so. I'll lead into more or less what happens. Um, Jason played less after this. Yes, he did. And the geomorphic dungeon that we did right before the prison break some years after this. So Jason played sporadically between this session and that session. And after that session, he more or less said, I'm done. I'm done playing D&D. It's really not my thing. Yeah. And that's okay. And he wanted to play board games. And board games aren't necessarily my thing. But so. So, so. I think a great lesson for this game is that you can't please. So you're right. I said, I want everyone to have a good time. And you said you, the, the group should have a good time. And you're right. The, the, the needs of the many. <laughs> oh God. I, I, won't, I won't finish it. <laughs> I won't finish it. But uh, you can't put one player's fun ahead of everyone else. And if that's what you have to do for that player to have a good time, then maybe you don't need to game together. And I, and I love Jason and our friendship's oh, yeah. not over. I had dinner with him yesterday. Um, we had a great burrito, by the way. Where'd you go? Uh, burrito Loco. Nice. Oh, so good. But um, as you hear, you read these stories online about, quote unquote, that player, and it's awkward, and you kick him out of the game and cut him out of your life. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't do that with Jason. We didn't cut him out of our life. Um, I'll say this, though. One thing, though. Yeah. I think if it's a one shot, like when Liz's friend Ryan came to play, we were... We all played it, even though it was a game we'd already played. We were there. We wanted him to have a good time. And I think that's okay. And if we were playing a one-off 
and Jason wanted to play a necromancer and the rest of us didn't have a blast, that would have been okay. But this was our primary campaign that we were working through. Yeah. So these were our main characters in our main game. That we've spent years working on, or at least yeah. a year. And the game was already underwater. Yeah. I think if this session would have gone better, that the, the life support may have worked. We may have defibrillated the game and brought it back to life. But because dusk now, happened. Now I'm just thinking of the... Uh, and then this happened. Insert the, the continue screen for the Punisher arcade game. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a deep cut. It is. So... Um, a, se- several sessions going poorly added up to this campaign ending, and, and this is one of the sessions. The game was on life support coming into the session, and it was still on life support and maybe a little worse off coming out of the session. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right. So to sum it up, maybe don't home, don't allow homebrew <laughs> your first session in a new system. Keep it simple uh, and recognize that as much as you want to make every single one of your players happy, Sometimes that's not the same thing as making the group happy. Yes. So having, and that theme we keep coming back to, Brian, having that metagame conversation with someone and saying, hey, for the good of the group, for the good of this, for the good of that, can we all agree to do this? And having that metagame conversation to, to set expectations, it makes life so much easier in business, that, that meta project program level conversation. Here's how we're going to relate. Here's how we're going to share milestones. Here's how you're going to give me status on your project because I'm depending on your project. You know, my success depends on your success. Same conversation. You've got to have that meta conversation. You have to have alignment. You have to have alignment so you can all work together at the table to make the game fun or to make your business productive. All right. Thank you for listening. Again, RPGLessonsLearned.com. You'll find all our episodes and all the, the subscribe buttons for all the various platforms you can subscribe in. Have a great week. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.